We are looking at uh, the story of Elijah. Um, We've been looking at him since the turn of the year. I felt God speak to me about him with regard to us as a church, with regard to myself in some ways. And uh, I felt God just prophetically applying lots of lessons here to to us and to myself. Although we've looked also at earlier passages in 1 Kings, the challenge of compromise and all those things. If you've been... If you're a member of the church, been regular with us, you know that we've been working through the second half of 1 Kings. <clears throat> now we've actually come to the last few chapters of that book. We've got a couple of chapters at the beginning of 2 Kings, and then when we've said bye-bye to Elisha, Elijah, and we're not going to go on with Elisha, we're going to just uh, stop with the handover. It's going to be over the next few weeks after Easter. But what I'm looking at this morning is really the last bit of 1 Kings. Um, I'm not going to, it's difficult to know which bit to read because I'm going to have to refer to the story there. If you're not familiar with it, which you might well not be, um, wouldn't be a surprise, I'm going to have to sort of fill in little bits because I feel God wants to say something which is very important and relevant to us out of this section of, uh, of his word. The title I've given it, which is a bit strange perhaps, it's not only about you, Elijah. Um, I think God wants to challenge us, and challenge me, it has challenged me, that he's on a big work in our day in the UK, in the nation we live in. And uh, he's doing a number of things, and we need to understand how that works. We need to understand how we fulfil our part in it without thinking that we're the only ones. It's, not, it's all about us, because it isn't. And that's a challenge to us individually, as well as, as a church, even as a movement like New Frontiers. I'll just briefly pray, and then I think I'd like to get into it, really, get on with it, and... Uh, One or two parents can come back as I start. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its relevance to us today. I thank you, Lord, that you take and apply uh, your word, which once was written so long ago as men and women battled with their relationship with you. And Lord, you take it and apply it to us in our relationship with you today. We love it, Lord. We love your word and spirit working together. Please may we experience that this morning together. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we get to these closing chapters, we see, of the 1 Kings, we see Elijah is still the man, the prophet speaking to the nation, speaking to Ahab. In fact, last time I preached, we looked at chapter 21, which was where he challenged Ahab about Naboth's vineyard, Ahab's uh, really murder by proxy through Jezebel of, of Naboth and just taking his vineyard. And Ahab spoke Sorry, Elijah spoke to Ahab very clearly and very confrontationally with great courage. But it wasn't only what Elijah was doing that God was active in in the days that we're looking at, towards the end of Elijah's ministry. And I want to pick up this little reference in 1 Kings 19, when Elijah's actually very depressed. And we looked at this some weeks ago. And, he, and he's a bit down the tube because he's done everything he knows God called him to do. He's seen the fire fall. On the, on the sacrifice, incredible experience on Mount Carmel. He's prayed in the rain, which actually Jeff referred to this morning. He's prayed and seen the rain come, and actually nothing really changes fundamentally in the nation. Ahab and Jezebel are the same. In fact, Jezebel is right, quite vicious. She said, I'm going to kill you, and get you, uh, you know, get you and finish you off like you finished off the Baal prophets. She's very threatening. She's not on the back foot at all. And Elijah runs away and is depressed. At one point, he asked for God to kill him, take his life. 
But the point we're looking at now is just a few verses in 1 Kings 19. It's one of the times when he finds his way back to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, really back to basics to meet with God again. And God says to him, I think with great compassion and challenge, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you here? What's going on with you? I think that's the the tone of the challenge. And Elijah pours his heart out. Verse 14, Elijah replied in 1 Kings 19, verse 14, Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant and broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. It's utterly self-pity. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came, go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshai, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael. Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose tongue, mouths have not kissed him. God said, actually, I've got other people who I'm planning to do other parts of this task of changing the nation. And in actual fact, I've got 7,000 others. It's not just you, Elijah. Gently and firmly, God says, it's not just you. Now, when we get to the next few chapters, chapter 20 and then 22 particularly, we see several other prophets speaking to the nation. And they speak to the nation as bravely and confrontationally as Elijah himself. They're of a similar caliber. For example, in 1 Kings 20, and obviously we haven't got time to read it all, so you'll have to allow me to tell you it a bit. In 1 Kings 20, there is a prophet who keeps guiding Ahab in war. Now, he's not an Ahab fan, this prophet. He's clearly coming with God's word, but he's helping Ahab to defeat a pagan king called Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, who is out to destroy Israel. And Ahab would have been destroyed, but for the wisdom God gave him through this prophet. And so here's a few verses. We'll quickly put them up. You can look at them on the screen. 1 Kings 20, verses 13 14. Meanwhile, a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, and announced, This is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? That's the Aramites. I will give it into your hand today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. But who will do this? asked Ahab. The prophet replied, This is what the Lord says. The young officers and the provincial commanders will do it. Who will start the battle? he asked. The prophet answered, You will. <laughs> I mean, Ahab's a bit of a wimp anyway. I said, oh, what's going to happen? You're going to fight. You're going to start it. You're going to win. Take notice of what I say. God's fighting for you. And then he keeps giving the strategy. So you get 1 Kings 20. I think that will go up as well. Verse 22. Afterward, the prophet, the same man, came to the king of Israel and said, Strengthen your position and see what must be done. Because next spring, the king of Aram will attack you again. He'd won one battle. This is uh, Ahab. had won one battle, Israel. But he said, they're going to hit you again. And then later on, verse 28, the man of God came up and told the king of Israel, this is what the Lord says, because the Arameans think the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am the Lord. So he had another strategy given to him from God and this prophet keeps feeding the word of God to this very odd king, this very rebellious, pagan, sort of uh, semi-pagan king who had Jezebel, but yet God was protecting his people and giving them victory. And so he kept getting help 
from this prophet. Now, what actually happened, I've got to fill you in quickly, you won't understand it. What actually happened is that, of course, God gave him victory. And, and so Ahab captured the king of Aram and all his generals, 32. Oh, it's very interesting, because oh, I'm interested in that but you won't be because you won't know what I'm talking about. So I'll talk what you know. So there's, there's 32 generals, right? And, and the king, and he captures them, and he's supposed to kill them. Now you might think, oh, that's a bit squeamish. You're squeamish. Yeah, you watch lots of stuff on telly. This is real life. You watch films. And he's supposed to kill them, but he doesn't. Ahab doesn't kill them. He makes a treaty with them. He is a right banana, this guy. He's a right idiot. So he makes a treaty with them. And, and, he, and he says, you're, you know, well, you're my brother, literally. You can read it for yourself. And he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he, so he makes a treaty. Now, he, so he messes up. So another prophet, totally different prophet, comes along and says to his friend, will you hit me, cut me with your sword? And the friend said, no, I won't. And he runs off and the prophet says, because you won't do it, you'll be eaten by a lion. That happens. It's pretty frightening. And then another person says, will you hit me? So the person says, yeah, okay. So he hits him with a sword. And he wraps his head round, binds himself up. Little blood oozing through. Real wound. It's not a pretend one. And he stands there like this. And when Ahab comes past, he says, Ahab, please help me. And he says, he said, I was told to look after a prisoner and I, and I let him go while I was just busy here and there. You can read it for yourself. That's what he says. I let him go and, and, and I'm in trouble now. And Ahab says, well, it's your own fault. And then suddenly this bloke whips off this bandage and says, ha ha, the Lord's word to you is you've done the same. And because you've let someone go you should have looked after, you're going to be judged. I think that's pretty brave. Oh, there's a little bit of that on the screen, I think. 1 Kings, this is a totally different prophet. 1 Kings 20, verses 41 to 43. This is the end of the story. Then the prophet quickly removed the headband from his eyes. The king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. Recognized him, see? These guys have been around quite a bit. He said to the king, this is what the Lord says. You have set free a man I had determined should die. Therefore, it is your life for his life, your people for his people. Sullen and angry, the king of Israel, he's always doing that, isn't he? He went off in a sulk and went to his palace. So, actually, that's pretty brave. That's pretty radical stuff, that you, you get yourself cut, bound up, and then you bring this word to the king, which is not a cosy, cuddly word for him. Then if you go to chapter 22, after Naboth's vineyard, there's a whole nother prophet story. And this guy's called Micaiah, but it's probably Micah, which is easier for me to say. And it, it fortunately is probably Micah. And Micah has a whole nother confrontation, which we're not going to read, because you haven't, we haven't time, but basically... Ahab now, three years after Naboth's vineyard, is totally back to his unrepentant ways. He repented briefly, as we saw. But, but he's, he's now off. Now, this is the end. I will let you in on the 32 generals. This is the bit. He's now got to fight the Arameans again. Because the king survived, and he's got his 32 generals, and they're all out there having a go at Ahab again. What he looked, what he didn't finish off, came back and finished him off, which is another sermon. You know, if you tolerate sin, it often comes back and destroys you. But that's what happened to Ahab. And so the Arameans were back after him again. But this time, if he didn't really listen to God, which he didn't, sadly, he was going to be judged and killed in this battle. He wasn't going to win it. And another prophet called Micah has to come and bring him that bad news and actually really bravely confronts him and says to him, you will die in this battle if you don't turn back to God. And as I say, he doesn't. And so at the end, not before the battle, at the end of quite a long dialogue between Micah and Ahab, Ahab says, put him in prison, because he always says bad things to me. Micah, I mean, he obviously heard from Micah many times. 
Micah always prophesies bad things to me. And this is what he says. It's on the screen, 26, verse 26. The king of Israel then ordered, take Micaiah and send him back to Ammon, the ruler of the city, to Joash, the king's son, and say, this is what the king says. Put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah declared, if you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added, mark my words, all you people. I think that's plucky, isn't it? That's pretty plucky. It's got guts, that guy. It's another one. It's not Elijah at all. This is a guy called Micah. And he already knows him, Ahab. And he says, right, if you return, I'm a liar. I'm not a prophet. You're not going to come back. (laughs) Brave stuff. I love it. So these guys, so what are we looking at here? What's the lesson for us? Is John just carried away with the story? Well, he is, because it's the real story. It's real Bible, real history, real people, real situations. And God's recorded it for our instruction. And I think we are meant to see ourselves, I want us to see ourselves prophetically as an Elijah people. God's challenged us to, to be a people of prophetic and speak to the nation around. I feel it's an appropriate challenge to us here. And, and I think it's, it's been around for a while to, to many of us in our sort of church what was once called Restoration Churches. But there are two big lessons I want to get out of this this morning. Here's the first one. There are other prophets at work in the nation. That is a big lesson. It's not only Elijah. The work of God is always much bigger than any one individual, any one church, or any one group of churches. That is true today. The work of God in modern Britain is much bigger than what we do, what I do, we do, what New Frontiers does, what even our sort of churches do. God is on a bigger move than that. Just like here, he is addressing issues in a nation. I believe God's doing that in our nation. And he's addressing issues, and it's a lot bigger than Elijah quite calculates himself. We saw in 1 Kings 19, in the bit we read, that God said there are going to be other people you've got to raise up who are going to do some of the work that you have not completed. It wasn't a judgment on Elijah. It's more like it's not all about you. There's going to be others doing things with a new generation, for example, which was Elisha's job. The next generation are going to carry on and finish off what you've started. And I believe God's in, in, in business of doing that in, mod, in our late nation, in the modern Britain we live in. If you believe the media... And you shouldn't. Don't believe the media, any of it. But if you do believe it, you think that modern Christianity, Christianity in modern Britain had died out, wouldn't you? It was all over and done with. Nobody believes that anymore. That is total rubbish. I'm now old enough to have a perspective. I was 59 this week. I'm not ashamed. I'm so old, I'm not ashamed of my age. And I, 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 I can at least go back as an adult over 40 years, uh, well, 41, I suppose, of Christianity. I can tell you now, there are more churches, there are bigger churches, there are livelier churches in our nation now than when I was 18. Masses more. Masses more. It's not just a little. There are churches that didn't exist. When, When I was that age... What I've left at King's Church Hastings didn't ha- exist. It's now 400 people. CCK didn't exist. That's uh, Christ the King at Brighton. I'm just using our own churches. Eastbourne, which is 750 now, I found out yesterday. That, that, that it didn't exist till 1988. 
This church would have been a small, if I can be respectful, sort of tin tabernacle little effort in Stanmore Lane. Sorry, Brian, and one or two are still... But but you know what I mean? You would have had quite a restricted vision. Go back 40, 41 years. Been serving God faithfully in Stanmore uh, Evangelical Church. Look what God's done here. But we're not the whole deal. There are churches of thousands in many of our cities, and actually some not even in our cities. There are churches far bigger than Spurgeon had in Victorian London, today in modern London. There are. And they're not all black churches, though there's no problem with the fact that there are a lot of immigrant, as we might say, churches. There's African churches, Caribbean churches, and they've brought thousands to the Lord. They're huge, godly men. I mean, I know some stories of of, of wonderful, godly men serving the gospel in modern London, huge churches. But there's there's what we might call Anglo-Saxon type churches. There's the sort of all sorts of people. And think of Holy Trinity Brompton. Think of the whole move of that. God is on the move in our nation. It is very exciting. There are thousands of growing churches. The place is really... I think if Jesus doesn't come back quickly... And so in a hundred years or so, they look at the history, I think they will reckon a revival had already started. It's like the Wesleyan revival. It's not like the, it's not like the Welsh one. That was like a flash flood. And it was over in about five week, years. But in, in, in the Wesleyan one, it was really a slow build over maybe a hundred years until you actually influence the whole nation. And, it, and it, all the stuff we know about the Wilberforces and the, a lot of the reforming stuff came out of the evangelical move of God, which Wesley and Whitfield worked on all through their lives. And it was much more thorough. There was, I mean, there were little Wesley chapels all over the nation. Church planting in all sorts of communities. I think we're on that sort of a move of God. And it may well be the next generation will see something far more than I have. I hope I get a chance to see a bit of it, please, Lord. But I think, I think I will see something more. But I think that there is a big thing God is on. There are many streams and groupings that God is working with, even here in Winchester. We know and love our brothers and sisters. And I've just used a few examples. Christ Church, Vineyard, uh, City Church, Baptist Church, Harvest Church. You know, and, 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 and many of these are quite significant in their own right. Vineyard wouldn't have been there 20, 30 years ago. Christchurch, I don't know what it was like 50 years ago. I don't know, but I'm sure it's bigger, I suspect, and more effective for God. I, I'm not, I don't really genuinely know. But I think you'll find that there are all sorts of churches growing and expanding around us in the nation. Just think of the impact of Alpha. I genuinely think, as someone who lived at the time when Billy Graham's... Um, campaigns were going on in the 60s anyway. I was alive in the 50s, but I didn't go to the camp. I went to some Billy Graham uh, crusade things in the 60s. I genuinely think Alpha's impact on Britain is as big, probably bigger, than the Billy Graham. I honestly believe that. Having seen that, I think Billy Graham was magnificent, but I actually think Alpha is probably more substantial and has a more sort of bigger, broader, lasting impact. Just Alpha than probably the Billy Graham thing. Apart from the other things it's spun off, there's all sorts of sort of other alpha type things, aren't there? Why uh, exploring Christianity and why Jesus? And, and you know, the, the, just that whole thing of explaining the gospel to people and letting them come along and have a meal and really dig into the questions, it's phenomenal. I mean, if you told me when 40 years ago, lots of non-Christians are going to come to your church for about 10 weeks and listen about Jesus, listen to 45-minute talks on the Bible and prayer and have discussion about it, I wouldn't have believed you when I was 18, 19. I really, I thought, well, you won't get them through the door. They won't come for five minutes. 
But actually, God's doing stuff. It's a work of God. It is. And you're part of it. Isn't that amazing? You don't look very excited, but it is. And it's going on in our nation. And we need to pray for one another. We need to pray that all the prophets hit the target and work together. So I think here, the first lesson, and it's only two linked lessons really, is that there are many others speaking. Now it's not either or. You know, am I a Micah or an Elijah? They both do it. And they all work together in the bigger plan of what God's doing with the nation. Well, I think there's an associated second lesson. And I think it's this. When Elijah first appeared on the scene in 1 Kings 17, it's noticeable nobody else was challenging Ahab. And in actual fact, any prophets there were are referred to as either being killed by Jezebel or hiding in caves. They were hiding in caves in 1 Kings 18. So it seems that Elijah was a pioneer. And I I think I've got a point here. What's the point called? Uh, The next one, number two. I can't remember my own points. Oh, yeah. Other prophets were inspired, emboldened, and released. Oh, that's, my, that's it. I've preached my own sermon. But that's rather a long point, really. That's the whole point. That's the whole thing. Other prophets were inspired, emboldened, and released by Elijah's example. That's a long way from three words all beginning with P, isn't it? Well, that's it, really. Let's read it for yourself, and then we'll have a song. I think I was a bit hurried when I made that point. But basically, that's true. <laughs> Basically, that's true. I think, if you read the Bible carefully, there's nobody else doing anything when Elijah first hits the scene. I mean, he, he was a pioneer, and actually, they are hiding in caves. And now Elijah got depressed and ended up in a cave, as we saw earlier, with, earlier a few weeks ago. But, but at that point, they were all hiding there. And I think, I really believe, something was inspiring about this guy. That somebody actually got up and said... God's word and spoke it and proclaimed it to Ahab. Now I believe in the sort of broad renewal, restoration, revival thing that I, I, I felt God spoke to us about 30, 20, 30 years ago. I think there was a renewal of God's spirit which touched individuals and restored the gifts of the spirit and baptism of the spirit. And many of us were, were impacted with that. I was baptised in the Spirit in 1971. We're impacted with it. It revolutionised our lives. But then God spoke to us, it's bigger than that. I want to change my church. And for me, that was a huge issue, and it still is, that there was a restoration of the church. There was church is going to change as well. And church is changing, and it has changed. And then I believe the promise of God was that that will have an impact on the nation. Renewal, restoration, revival. Now, none of these three, if you like, are um, disposable. You need them all. We need people filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with the, uh, the Spirit and using the gifts of the Spirit. That's not sort of a fashion thing that we've gone past 30 years ago. That's still true. We also still need churches restored. We need churches changed. God will never bring revival... Just It won't impact just if we stay the same. We've got to let God change us and change our church. And I believe the restoration of New Testament principles to church life has been a very important part. I think some of us in our sort of churches, you know, like the New Frontiers ones, but many of the other so-called new churches, have played a key role in this. Back in the 70s, there were a few Bible weeks 
singing choruses and doing stuff and singing in tongues. And, and there wasn't much else. And now what we might call charismatic worship is, is mainstream amongst Christians. It's common. I mean, there's all the spring harvests and all sorts of stuff going on. Now, in a way, that's just an example. There's more substantial things. We need to hold to them and still proclaim to the cities of Judah, your God reigns. We still need to say to the church, let's keep going forward. Now, I am obviously now speaking out from this passage prophetically, but I'm saying Elijah had to continue to be Elijah. He had to continue to do the Naboth's vineyard thing, to go in. But other people were, were just as bold. They had slightly different ways of operating. I mean, the guy who bandaged himself up, I mean, you don't catch Elijah dressing up much. Elijah doesn't do the dressing up thing, does he? He does it a little different. He comes in, you know, spits his locusts out, comes in with his hairy shirt on, whatever it was, and just goes for it. But there's another bloke who dresses up and, you know, catches Ahab out. Well, that's a bit different, but he's still doing it. And I think there are, it, but, but actually it's another important point, because you haven't read this, you don't know. In 1 Kings 22, there are a lot of prophets who are useless. There's 400 prophets who all t- tell Ahab exactly what he wants to hear. And they say, you are wonderful, you will fight and win. And it's Micah who comes in and says, you're horrible, God's going to judge you, and if you don't repent, you're going to die in the battle. And all the other 400 get cross with him. Now, here's the point. I'm only interested in prophets that speak the word of God. I'm not interested in anything that calls itself a prophet, anything that calls itself church, any sort of Christianity. Oh, we've got to be unified with anything. Oh, they call themselves a Christian. No, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in those who believe the word of God, who teach the word of God, who believe the gospel, who believe Jesus died for our sins, that he's the son of God and rose again, and who love Jesus and proclaim his truth and believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's loads doing that. I've mentioned them all this morning. They're my fellow prophets, not anybody who calls himself a prophet and says what the culture wants to hear. You can do what you like. and do. That's nonsense. They're just false prophets. So we're not talking about reunity with anything that calls itself Christian. Because there's a lot of churches that aren't Christian. They're just some modern, new age mishmash of tradition and goodness knows what. But actually... We're talking about those who proclaim the truth. And there's loads of them. So those prophets work together. They do, now, we don't know how much they knew each other, but I think they did a bit. We'll get there in a minute. But they, they certainly pushed together on the same front of proclaiming God's truth to the nation. You know, once upon a time, many years ago, I sort of thought that if, if, we got, if we, people like us, house churches and things that I was in, if we got it right, that would bring revival. So the idea was if we get the church right and we do it right, we'll do it. And it was, it was arrogant, actually. It was saying, right, you know, if we restoration, if people like Harvest Time and New Frontiers and what we were, if we just get it right, we don't have to worry about anybody else, it'll happen. I don't know if we taught it like that, but I think we all thought it like that. Well, I've learned over the years that's not so. That is not so. God is bigger than that. But I tell you, the other side is, you don't give up, and I don't give up, the bit that's important for me. See, Elijah still was Elijah. And I still believe in restoration of the church. There are lots of things I think are absolutely fundamental. And I would say them to any church. I say to the other prophets, if you like, in the nation... That church, for example, is a community of people. It's not a building you attend. There's a lot of people, that's revolutionary. It's not a building you attend. A building is not a church. It's a building. 
A church is a community of people who follow Jesus. And we need to proclaim that loud and clear. Many would, would get it now. They didn't always get it. We need to say the church is those who follow Jesus and believe in him. We love to have friends amongst us who aren't yet believers or not yet Christians. We welcome them. But actually we want them to know Jesus. We're not happy if they don't know Jesus. In other words, we expect people to get saved and added to the church. What is a believer? Well, a believer is whatever it is in the New Testament. And in simple terms, and clear terms actually, someone who's repented of their sin, put faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, been water baptised to proclaim that Jesus is their Lord and they want to follow him, and are filled with the Holy Spirit, baptised in the Spirit and empowered to live the Christian life. Now, again, that's a whole other sermon, but that's the sort of Christianity I believe in. And loads of others do. And that's the sort of message I want to provoke others. So sometimes I might find a fellow prophet who's pretty good, but a little wishy-washy on one of those. Well, I should challenge him or her. I should say, come on, you know, why don't you get believer's baptism? Why don't you believe in that? Because that's a part of, I think, a New Testament uh, commitment to Jesus as Lord. And so, so there's still something to say. We don't say oh, we're all prophets now, it doesn't matter. We still have to be what we are. We still have to shout loud what God's done in us. There's a real possibility, I believe, of all the spiritual gifts listed in the New Testament working today. I believe in signs, wonders, healings. Do you? Hallelujah. So do many of us. Not every Christian does. So I still proclaim that because I believe it's a fundamental thing. God has restored. And I'm an Elijah person. I'm a bit of a pioneer. And I'm not going to stop saying God heals today because he does. I'm not going to stop saying lay hands on the sick and pray for them. I don't all get healed, but I still believe in miracles. I believe in signs and wonders. I believe the gifts of the Spirit are for today. If I had time, I could make a what I consider a very strong case for it. And I think we need to enjoy them and use them. I believe God is sovereign in salvation. That salvation is a work of God, not a work of man. And therefore we acknowledge the security that brings and the, and the clarity it brings to our faith. I also believe we're a people motivated by grace. Now grace is a huge one for us in our sort of prophetic movement. And we've got to hold to it and teach it and provoke it. And because we don't want legalism in the church. We want people to be holy, but we want them to be ruled by grace. Motivated by grace, not motivated by law. I believe in apostles and prophets. And we need to believe these things. We need to see that local church needs apostolic and prophetic ministry. Or it won't fully achieve what God's got in mind. And so on and so forth. I've got a long list really. I'm not going to go into them all. I believe there isn't a clergy laity divide. I believe there isn't a professional leadership. I believe God does set aside leaders. He gifts leaders and it's not inappropriate to to pay them for their ministry. But I don't think it's a profession. I don't think you can go and get a qualification. It's not how it works. You can get study later, but it's actually about gifting and release. And a lot of leaders will be homegrown because the gifting will be recognised in the end and released in some way. I believe elders run the church, lead the church, govern it um, and, and should be allowed to. We believe in the authority of the Bible in all matters of personal conduct and church life. Now, I'm rattling through things that are, I think, very important. And we never give way to these and we proclaim them to others. So sometimes when I'm talking to good fellow church leaders on tricky issues that we have to deal with in our culture, 
I will say, but don't we believe the Bible, brothers? Don't we believe what the Bible teaches on sexuality? Don't we believe what the Bible teaches on sexual morality? We've got to hold to that. If we lose that, we lose everything. Because we're prophets with something to say to the nation. We're not time-serving, joining Ahab in whatever he wants. We'll prophesy whatever you like. Oh yes, you can do what you like. That's the false prophets. Any decent prophet is going to bring God's word and it's not going to always be comfortable. Never is. But there's lots of decent prophets today, as there was in Elijah's time, and so on and so forth. As I say, I could go on with a lot, but we do endeavour to talk about word and spirit together. The two are, are both vitally important. We also believe that the church is here for the nations. So world vision, world mission is part of our call. And it's the part of any church's call. Raise your eyes. Don't just be parochial. Look at the world. Take them, the gospel to the world. We believe that people need to be saved to go to heaven and put faith in Jesus for that. And that when they have become Christians, that will bring change in their lives. And when enough of them are saved, that will bring change to a community or a culture. Now, these principles must not be lost, must they? And yet, we're not the only ones saying them. There's a tension here. Elijah has to be Elijah, but that doesn't rubbish Micah and the others who are equally speaking. That's what I feel the burden on my heart for us today. We admire Vineyard. I admire Alpha. I admire them enormously. We benefit from HTB with Alpha, marriage courses, parenting courses. I admire the way they have a national profile. I think it's magnificent. But I also would, if I was with you know, Nicky Gumbel, I might say to him, why do you do that? I'm, I'm going to lovingly challenge him about a few things, which I wonder if they're quite, you know, how I see the word of God. But I'd love, love him to bits. I think he's wonderful. And it seems to me that's how it should go, that we are prophets together proclaiming to the nation. Do you understand what I mean? You don't find an Elijah Micah sort of Barney somewhere, a fight, or the Elijah group and the Micah group, they seem to just do their stuff, as God calls them, and they don't get in the way of each other either. Okay, now, I believe we have something of a pioneering and provoking role. Now, you may not feel that, I do. I feel it about myself. I would say that over the years, I've seen it in the movement of the churches I'm in, and many of the churches I'm being involved with. We tend to do stuff. I don't look for it. I wouldn't say I'm a natural radical. But when we were at Hastings, we bought this huge building in 1992, and before anybody else, even Brighton had bought one. It's just been how it is that God's tended to lead me that way. And I think we will be pioneering, even with the moves of how I work with Steve, this is more parochial perhaps, but we'll be pioneering things about how others can handle as transition and and, uh, generational things go on. But I think on the wider front, we're a a bit of a pioneer. I think this church has been a pioneer in FIEC churches as it grasped under Greg the gifts of the Spirit. It was a radical thing to do. It was a costly thing to do. And somehow went beyond their history and their tradition into what we are now. And I think we've got to keep that pioneer. We've got to keep being Elijah-like and not get sort of complacent nor self-centred. But we've got to also understand that there's others also going forward. One last thing, and there's loads of verses here, but they can go through very quickly. When you go to two kings, you realise that these prophets did know each other. And there seems to be a fair degree of, of mutual respect. So you're now in the bit of the story, which we haven't read yet, where Elijah's near the end of his life and Elisha is with him. And you get these verses. Here you go, 2 Kings 2.3. The company of the prophets of Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, 
Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied. Do not speak of it. And then 2 Kings 2.5. The company of the prophets at Jericho. So there was a load at Bethel. We've just seen this is a different lot. At Jericho. Went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know the Lord's going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied. Don't speak of it. Then 2 Kings 2.7, there seems to be a different group. 50 men of the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. So they're all sort of interested. They they respect him. And then finally, after Elijah Elijah has gone up to heaven, uh, 2 Kings 2.15, the company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. So it strikes me that these guys weren't enemies. They weren't rivals. They knew of each other and they had a mutual respect. Now, I mean, we haven't got a lot of detail, but the sense is that they were all part of what God was doing in the Israel of that day. And he was changing the nation. And I believe we live in a very exciting time in modern Britain. You may not be excited. I'm very excited. I think God is on the move in modern Britain. And I think it's not just us. There's all sorts of stuff. Great big Hillsongs churches and, as I say, uh, black African churches in London really making quite an impact, being noticed by people like Boris Johnson and having to take notice of them and visit them because they have such an impact on social work and things in some of the big sink estates of London. And, and, you know, there's stuff going on all over the nation. Abundant life at Bradford. You know, all sorts of things just that aren't us. And we're part of it. And we've got to be authentic, walk with integrity to what God's given us. And we've got to say, yeah, these things, I listed a few, could have listed more. They are important. These are some of the things we're saying. And we're working with you. And together, we want to see our nation changed. Amen? I believe he will change it. So I want us to end there with the musicians coming up because the children will be coming in on these last couple of songs. So this isn't, a, this isn't going to be a, an appeal for you to come and be prayed for this morning. That will come at another time, on other occasions. This is to stir you to pray for each other as churches. And in our life group, um, community, oh, so many names, what we call ours, community groups. In our community groups this week, I'm going to encourage you to pray for other churches and just to pray for other churches in this city and wider. And let's just realise there's loads of us at work here and I, I want them to be successful. I'd love to see people like Nicky Gumbel interviewed on television more. You know, they're not going to interview me, probably as wise, but I'd love to see men of God interviewed. You know, I'd love to see it. Carl, Lord, give them an even higher profile than they've got already. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I'm sure Elijah, when he heard, if he did hear about Micah, said, well done, Micah. You got in there and gave him the word of God. Um, And I think, as I say, Elijah probably provoked or perhaps brought an element of provocation and encouragement just by being what he was, which is what I trust we can be. We can sometimes provoke others just by being what we are. Amen?